0: Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan. An in-depth look at our industry from our very own chief medical officer who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside.
1: Thanks for joining us. My name is Stan Schwartz. I'm an infectious diseases physician with decades of experience in healthcare as a student, a teacher, a fellow, a researcher, a practicing physician in both solo and group practices, a health system executive, and now a healthcare entrepreneur. And as I get older, as a patient, I wanna share my 360 degree view of healthcare with you. My thanks to Zero Studios for support of this podcast. Mention frontier medicine in Colorado, and you might conjure up a vision of TV's Jane Seymour as Dr. Michaela Quinn in 19th century Colorado Springs. But you may be surprised to learn that Colorado still has frontier levels of medicine as defined by the Federal Health Resources and Services Administration. These areas vary by degree of remoteness and difficulty in travel for health care needs. Indeed, dealing with a major health problem in the middle of a winter storm when the nearest specialty location is across a mountain range isn't a simple 911 response. An easily dealt with injury like a broken leg or a head injury can be fatal when care is impossible to reach. Today I talk with Dr. Clifford Brown, the director of Colorado's Custer County Public Health Agency. Dr. Brown is a doctor of optometry who gravitated into public health after stints. In the United States Air Force and Army. His career brought him to this sparsely populated area nestled between two major mountain ranges and many long miles from the nearest tertiary care. Dr. Brad and I discussed the imperatives of public health in a frontier area and how technology is providing some solutions. Individualism and self-sufficiency are challenges for public health workers that require not only deft and empathy, but also a realization to meet people where they are. So Dr. Brown, welcome to the podcast. We appreciate your time very much. And today we're gonna learn a whole lot about frontier medicine that I had no idea about. I'd like to first ask you if you could just describe quickly your journey from optometry to public health and how you got from where you and I crossed paths many years ago in Texas, to the mountains and valleys of Colorado.
0: Absolutely, sure. Yeah, the uh, the classes that I had in public health, in optometry back in uh, 69 through 73 and so on, undergrad and then into a professional school, uh, we had one class particularly that the it was kind of an offering that said you need to have kind of a touch of the base here so that you understand what it is. And so we we went through a regular didactic presentation and he kept using the phrase bang, more bang for the buck. And that's probably one of the few things that I remember about the, the whole class uh, in 19, spring of 73. The the interest was peaked though. And when I transferred clear up in, I guess it was uh, 93, uh, so 20 years after graduating, uh, when I transferred into the public health service, it was because I knew that there was a whole large sector of our society that was not receiving, how would I put this nicely, the top quality healthcare in many instances. And that was our Indian reservations. And so when I transferred out of the army and into uh, the US Public Health Service and into specifically the Indian Health Service, it was to provide care that I saw almost in deficit spending, so to speak, uh, to that whole population that considered themselves hard done by and for good reason. Most of us know why, and really could put my energy into providing healthcare in a public, uh, public facet that that had all sorts of strings attached, so to speak. So in, in dealing with people who would walk in with really red eyes, uh, very, very uncomfortable, having difficulty surviving, so to speak, and, and finally figuring out that it was because of the black mold in their showers and throughout their house, that it was constantly an irritation to them and that it was going to be restricting the healthy development of the children in that household, you know, that was very, very, very interesting to me. Also, when I had one of my patients who is a tribal policeman go out to uh, quell a domestic violence uh, episode, the, the man of the household saw him coming across the prairie. This was in the Blackfeet Nation. And he was so riled up, so angry, that he literally hopped in his pickup and proceeded to smash into the patrol car, not just once, but again and again and again until he rolled the patrol car. And I watched the policeman's Visual system and visual function decrease in a matter of 60 days from a good 2020 with normal visual acuity, normal uh, visual field, you know, the peripheral vision uh, capabilities, down to legally blind after that severe incident with head trauma. That really piqued my interest. And so I got into uh, trying to figure out why things like this happened and the visual field changes that said, well, he must have glaucoma. He didn't have glaucoma, but he had severe head trauma. And so from that, developing then uh, some talking points and gave some lectures to the public health service at their symposiums. And then went on from there into, because the Iraq war was going uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, you know this this whole end of things in the Middle East, uh, figuring out that there were there were problems there that nobody was really addressing in the military, or at least very few, and it was not being addressed as a as a whole for the Army, the Air Force, you know, by the branches of service before the guys ever went over there so that there was no uh, documentation that they were normal before and they were not normal when they were coming back. And so trying to uh, work through developing the scenario for treatment, uh, for uh, setting them up so they could document that they had actually Gone through, and this was a fight because it was a change, as you know, Dr. Schwartz. Uh, it was a change in thinking for the military, and that's always a slow process. So, the the change there, uh, I had the opportunity to present before the Surgeon General of the United States, and then to develop. Uh, the kind of scenario for the domestic violence that was occurring, that was resulting when the guys would come back after being bounced along uh, in 100-mile-an-hour winds for 200 meters or so across rocks and into trees and so on when they were coming in for their landings, parachuting into behind the lines. and seeing so much of it, seeing the same type of, or general uh, types of damage, uh, changes in these guys' personalities and what they were capable of doing, like sitting down reading uh, to gain information, uh, the responses they had to all sorts of simple things like their children running into the room playing just doing what kids always do but they're just playing and screaming they hit that door and come into his room and the guy would come and glued. he couldn't handle that kind of sudden sharp noise or you know images coming into his peripheral vision so there were a lot of divorces occurring a lot of Uh, guys trying to go back to school because they had been put out of the army for medical reasons. And they couldn't handle being able to sit down and read. They could not comprehend what they were reading. So that's kind of a strange crossroad, I, I understand. But that's what really kind of triggered me off into spending a lot of time thinking about the various aspects that contribute to the the health of the public in general not just eyeballs or vision or anything like that but how all of those things relate
1: so let's fast forward to Custer County it's a small county it's located in the valley between two very high mountain ranges a whole lot of physical challenges to healthcare can you Give us a description of what kind of healthcare is available locally. What about emergency services and so forth? Because, you know, when I think of Colorado, I think of Denver, I think of Colorado Springs. I think of national parks. I think of mountains crisscrossed by ski, you know, ski trails and ski resorts. I don't think of frontier when I think of Colorado medicine. So. Tell us about frontier four and where you live.
0: We have 64 counties in Colorado, and a lot of them are either rural or frontier. Um, The two large areas, obviously that you mentioned, Colorado Springs and Denver, uh, plus Boulder, that kind of corridor is referred to as the front range. And we have Pueblo, right on I-25, which traverses the state from north to south, so to speak. Uh, And so Pueblo is another fairly large, as is Grand Junction on the west side, but basically there are no large population areas, except for what I have mentioned. So we are in a small valley that is located between two mountain ranges. One the San Gary de Cristos, and the other the Wet Mountains. So, when we talk about frontier here in the rural area, there there are four different levels, and these are defined by HERSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration. And a large portion of it, of how you get classified as a frontier rural county is how long you have to drive before you even hit one of any kind emergency department. So if you are in trouble, do you have to drive more than 45 minutes, you have to drive more than 50 minutes, more than an hour. So the level one frontier, and they they break it down to four levels. Level one is 60 minutes or greater from areas that are 50,000 people or more in population. Level two is 60 minutes or greater from the urban areas of like 50,000 people or more people and 45 minutes or greater from urban areas of around 25 to 50. Level three, uh, 60 minutes or greater from 50,000, 45 minutes or greater from 25 to 50 and 30 minutes or greater from a 10 to 25,000 approximately we are a level four. That means we're 60 minutes or greater, and that's, we're actually 61 minutes from Pueblo, from the 50,000 population, 45 minutes or greater from the 25 to 50, 30 minutes or greater from the 10 to 25, and 15 minutes or greater from urban areas of 25 to 10,000.
1: So do you you have an ambulance and an EMT in town in the valley?
0: We do have EMS. So we have um, our ambulance services. But the other kind of portion to this picture is that we we have recorded winds here that come through this, come shooting through the valley of over 160 miles an hour. You don't see that on our news. I mean, can you imagine that happening in New York City? I mean, in Florida. I mean, those are things that would get reported nationally. They don't get reported much here. And we also have had, this is not routine, but we have had a seven-foot snowfall. So if you can imagine an ambulance getting through seven feet of snow plus wind. So the wind would stop even an air rescue like helicopters. And we have lots of air transport to our various um, hospitals that are assigned to us. But those literally can be shut down. So there is no access. We literally would be dealing with trying to stabilize and try to keep the person alive for long enough until the winds and the snow or whatever, or the, the slides in the uh, canyons that the roads go down through to get to the hospital, uh, those those can be stopped. And so, so it is, yes,
1: sir. But I mean, you know, they always talk about the the magic 180 minutes for a stroke victim. Yes. You know, to get clot busting treatment to preserve yes. brain tissue. I mean, in an ideal circumstance, how long would it take a person with a stroke there to get to a, to a hospital that could do that so-called thrombolytic therapy to bust up clots?
0: It totally depends on the weather. Normally uh, we could get down to Salida, which is north and west of us in 61 minutes. We could get down to Canyon City in about 45 to 50 minutes and we could get to Pueblo in 61 minutes. That's by car or vehicle.
1: So- do you have Go ahead.
0: Yeah, that, that kind of spells out the, the situation for you uh, in that we just do not have timely access to that level of care.
1: Do you have examples in your own experience of bad outcomes? people either not surviving or not surviving well simply because of difficulty accessing specialty care?
0: Yes, sir. In our COVID, when the pulmonary epithelium started to really inflame uh, and everything was restricted, we had some people who were uh, less than optimally provided for.
1: I imagine as we spoke before to altitude will make a big difference there in people with respiratory problems. We could send,
0: and I did send people down to uh, Pueblo, for instance, which is a little bit under 6,000 feet. And they got down there and they weren't having any breathing problems at all. And they just turned around and said, well, oh, you're crazy. You don't have anything wrong with you. And yet <laughs> they come back up to 9,000 feet and their problems are still here, thank you very much, and they are serious, even within my own family. So it is is a challenge trying to even educate the EDs to be able to pay attention and try to kind of uh, bring the information they have available to them that would spur some rather acute dysfunction.
1: Tell us about the the population in your county. What kind of folks are there? Why they live in such a remote area? What's the attraction? And do you have Californians coming in and buying big tracts of land like's happening all over the rugged West?
0: I would like to say no, but I have to say yes. To the Californians coming in, uh, we have people from New York. We have people from Florida. We, you know, essentially land uh, that is um, sea level, and we have people from Texas. Sometimes you have to drive for a while before you even see a Colorado license plate. So we have people who are financially uh, very. Well put together. And we have people here who live with essentially dirt floors. So you run the gauntlet from uh, multi million dollar structures for homes uh, that have five, six to 10,000 square feet with two people or even one person living there. And we have families who really do work for a living who live in a small you know, two to three room house. So the, the variance is so much that there is obviously uh, a conflict that can very easily develop because the people's needs are so much different.
1: What kind of health resources do you have right there in town for acute illness?
0: We have a clinic. And when I came here in August of uh, 2020, the physician who is now here, the sole physician who is here uh, and actually practicing here in the the county, uh, came here within that same month. So we now have a singular physician and we have several um, nurse practitioners who function in the clinic. Uh, The clinic has now been purchased uh, by a hospital system out of Salida, which is larger, and they actually have neurologists, pediatricians, essentially all the specialties there. So that that has helped us some, so that if they find that they need somebody, they can actually transfer directly to the same system that the clinic is funded and managed by. So that has helped us. before that, there had been various physicians who had practiced here for a while and then transferred over to more populous areas uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and it, it has been a, a source of contention, it, it's tough. A lot of people, as is always the case with small clinics, choose to travel uh, for extended distances. Uh, to be able to go to their particular physician or their particular specialist. So we are we are challenged, to put it nicely.
1: How how does your remoteness in your mind affect preventive health measures, colonoscopy, mammograms, vaccinations, all the things that you know we know we know are beneficial, but sometimes you can't even get people across the street to go get them.
0: Yes, sir. That is the case here. And there is even more of a, a barrier, of course, because of the distance and because there are times of year that travel is severely restricted. Uh, a lot of the people are very tough. They have lived up here now for their families have been here uh, since the 1800s. And so, the attitude toward preventive care is not the same as when you can pop across the street, as you alluded to, to receive your local checkup or your colonoscopy or whatever. Uh, It's not not the same attitude at all. It's a rugged individualism. It's toughness. Uh, If you aren't Pretty well on your deathbed, you get on your horse and you round up the cows, or you feed them, or you do whatever you you need to do uh, to keep your particular ranch or farm going. So oxygen supplementation uh, for people who need it at this elevation, and there are significant numbers who do, particularly with COPD, with all the other pulmonary related diseases. Those uh, people love the mountains. They love the quiet. They love not having the sounds and the the smell of the the automobiles and so on. And so they are willing to sacrifice frequently uh, to be able to live here. Some of them sacrifice a little bit too long and don't live here anymore. But we have just within the last year, we lost one of our retired general officers he had to move back to a much lower, like one to 2,000 foot elevation so that his pulmonary system after he had gone through the COVID uh, infection, his pulmonary system, which was then compromised, would allow him to continue to function.
1: What about two questions about mental health services? What services are available? And, you know, I normally don't associate the words rugged individualism with accessing mental health services, that seems to be a little bit of a cognitive dissonance. Can you elaborate on that?
0: I believe so. Uh, Here, because it's such a challenge to live, to stay alive, it is not a popular thing to admit to being to any kind of weakness or disability. So if you have your something has gone wrong and you had a severe laceration uh, on your left leg or something like this, something that people can see, you, you continue to do what you do every day, but you may limp to do it. Uh, when it's not something, that is visible to the casual -er, passerby, or you're in the Amish or Mennonite communities or even in the veteran communities, the self-care is something that you do and you do not confess to having problems. It just is viewed as a sign of weakness. And so to obtain mental health care you literally travel out of the valley to where people probably won't see you that you know so those are uh, those are challenges that we meet uh, with a stigma of any kind of mental health care uh, challenges. We have people who will not will not come in, or they, like I said, have to go. 60 to 150 miles before they will actually darken the door of a mental health provider of some kind.
1: Does, has, what do you see for the role of telemedicine, telepsychiatry, telebehavioral health, and do you have the technical infrastructure in your valley to support telehealth?
0: As you can well imagine, our valley is, um, Technically challenged. We have recently been able to obtain broadband for the schools because of the COVID shutdown of schools. And so you end up with, uh, for the first time, being able to actually use your cell phone unless you sit in the parking lot of the subway or you sit uh, down at one of the banks where the reception was better you had to, for a long time, go into that type of thing. So my my hopes and plans for here are to develop significantly along the lines of telehealth so that we can have access for the people here without them leaving their homes and without them having to drive or admit to having the problems they're not going to admit to. So I think what i'm what I'm looking to, as far as our our challenge, is first of all, I'm developing mobile clinics so we can come around and visit uh, when, oh, routine, like music festivals or something like this are being held, and we can get our, our name out there, and people can stop in and, and pick up educational literature and be advised of what needs to be done. Uh, We're also holding health clinics, uh, usually in the spring. But I am actively negotiating with a a clinical system uh, to bring in telemedicine to our valley and have it become a routine source and an easy access so that people can cannot have to compromise everything they've believed in all their life um, to gain the care that other people just take for granted.
1: Could you do you have a rough estimate of what percent of the population currently has access to broadband that would support telehealth? Ballpark.
0: Ballpark. I would say now with the new broadband you know transmission and so on reception, we have gone from probably 15% up to maybe 75. Mm -hmm. Understanding that, for instance, in my house, uh, I have to have satellite to even get radio reception, to even get phone reception. And my wife is a professor. Uh, for the University of Nebraska system. And so for her to be able to teach her online classes in university level, uh, we had to put up and if <laughs> this dish. And if, if it's snowing, tough luck for the classes that day. So it can be interfered with, but basically we have come a long ways because we had to with COVID for our public schools.
1: So one thing I hear all the time, and I'm I'm sort of involved in a few public health initiatives here in Oklahoma, is the one thing we learned from COVID is that we don't have a well-funded, well-organized, integrated public health service in this country. Do you have, adequate, do you have adequate funding? And if you had adequate funding, if you had better funding, what other things would you be doing now? I would
0: be getting things accomplished a lot faster. The only reason I've been able to add and my, my real drive right now is to get nutritional care and instruction and education for pregnant mothers. We have about 30 eligible kids, children between uh, ages of three and four, that we are. Just last night, I attended a meeting for a kids council to to get classes and education and social interactions developed for the first time with the for the children, the young children. So I want to go into the uh, nutritional and supportive for uh, for lactation for. Uh, breastfeeding and so on, so that the children have a better chance than some of those that we've lost because they didn't know and there was nobody here really to tell them. So in pushing that, it is it has been a challenge, quite frankly, because that is not a high priority. It's not something that's highly visible. the general population here and because a good share of the population here is like almost 50 percent is either 50 or older so their their pressure on them for having small children and and teaching these things is significantly different than the people who are in their 20s and 30s so in dealing with a because we are not a heavily mechanized a heavily um, factory dominated uh, county, we have very few funds to play with. So you end up having to tax people for their property, which is about all that they have at times. Um, And that is your only tax base. For our County Commissioner's Board of Health, and they are the same people, um, to be able to, to fund essentially anything be beyond the government, uh, also all the health systems and road and bridge and you know, so on. So it is, a, it is a real challenge. There's a lot of pressure on them. The reason we've been able to, to make advances quickly here within the last couple of years is because of the COVID funding that we have received. So grants from the federal government, from the state. However, as you very well know, that is being ended. And so it places our county commissioners or board of health members under a lot of pressure saying how can we possibly fund what you're talking about when we we have all sorts of places for the money to go and we don't have a lot of it to begin with. So you bring up a very good point, Dr. Schwartz. It is it is a, an extreme challenge here.
1: Well, Dr. Brown, I appreciate very much your time today enlightening us on frontier medicine and some aspects of it I haven't thought about in 2022 here in the United States. Appreciate it very much. And I wish you the best of luck in achieving all those things you want to. Thank you, sir. And thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to Zero Studios for sponsoring this podcast. Zero Health worked with mid-sized, self-insured employers to help them save up to fifty percent on their healthcare by connecting employers and healthcare providers in a healthcare marketplace, and at the same time providing a great benefit to employees. Learn more on the web at zero.health or send an email to info@zero.health.
0: We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 degrees of healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out.